Welcome to In Search of Black Power. I'm Lawrence Grand Prix, Director of Research for Lead Yourself a Beautiful Struggle. I'm Rasheem, social scientist and independent scholar. So today we have another two-part episode for you all. So Rasheem and I both read the book, uh, When Affirmative Action Was White. So we want to talk about the history of affirmative action, compare that to some of the benefits that white people mostly got during the New Deal and sort of some of the benefits of the GI Bill that were largely given to white people and compare and contrast those two. And that's going to be the first episode. In the second episode, I'm going to talk more about unions and the unique ways that unions have been a tool to protect and to centralize white privilege and some of the solutions and ways that we can reconstructualize affirmative action, given the Supreme Court, given some of the controversies around it and some of the things that have worked in the past, some of the things that have not worked in the past, and how to think about this stuff more comprehensively today. So we're going to start with a history of affirmative action and some background on that. So, Rasheem, uh, I think you did the work. So, can you lead us on that? Sure. Uh, so, largely the chapters that I'm pulling from in this conversation is chapter two, if folks have the book and want to kind of follow along or, or look back at that information. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna lay out first, like, two main points of the entire conversation for this particular episode. And those two points, I'm loosely paraphrasing from a part of the book. Um and that is point one, by not including occupations in which African Americans primarily worked and by organizing racist patterns um, of administration, New Deal policies for Social Security, social welfare, and labor market programs restricted black prospects while providing positive economic reinforcement for the great majority of the white citizens of white citizens. That's point the main point of um, the conversation. And then the second one, Second main point is that the combination of unprecedented access to government support and powerful discrimination generated by local administration produce racial differences in aid distribution. All of those two points largely just say, um, point out the ways in which the, the New Deal was kind of a big deal in terms of not only creating uh, this creating the middle class with a lot of the programs, it also outlines ways in which uh, those funds, those programs, that aid was largely targeted, not only targeted toward helping white uh, families and white populations, but directly and very much intentionally left out large portions of African-American um, families that, that um, and there are policies that we're still benefiting from today. There's policies that those generations in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 60s, and 70s um, are still reaping some of those benefits when we talk about where the origin of the middle class and how it came to be and that sort of thing. So again, the book is When Affirmative Action Was White. So most of us kind of are familiar with affirmative action. But I'm just going to give a brief, super, super brief uh, background of affirmative action and kind of how it came to be and then why a little bit more on why this conversation is a bit important. So if we look at affirmative action in terms of a timeline um, of corrective, so to speak, ways in which um, uh, government try work to 
um, correct some of the racial disparities, right? So we could start with, let's say, 1954, U.S. Pre uh, Supreme Court, Brown versus Board of Education, rules separate uh, but equal doctrine violates the Constitution, right? That's a... Um, an effort to kind of correct some of those dis discriminatory practices. Then 1961, you have President Kennedy creates the Council on Equal Opportunity. Um, it's an executive order, and this ensures that federal contracts hire people regardless of race, creed, color, or national origin. Then you have the 1964 Civil Rights Act that renders discrimination itself illegal in the workplace. Now, it, go ahead. Um, mm -hmm. Just so... I was actually wondering this, so if other people are wondering this, in government officials, the first use of the actual term affirmative action is tied to Kennedy's executive order 10924, which was dealing with uh, equal opportunity for things like government contracts, and he explicitly states the contractors will take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that employees are treated during employment without regard to color, creed, color, or national origin. So the idea is that it's not just open. It becomes a concept where you don't just open it to everybody. You take affirmative steps to promote diversity within the workforce. And I wanted to bring it up because, and we'll probably talk about this more later, affirmative action ends up focusing almost exclusively <coughs> on elite college applications. Mm -hmm. But many people argue that it's a more productive, effective, and more middle-class vision of affirmative action to focus on affirmative action in things like construction jobs, which seems like these government contracts would have impacted. Mm -hmm. Government service jobs in terms of like all the things the government pays to do in states. Affirmative action can ensure that those workforces are more diverse, but that's not what affirmative action became. <laughs> mm -hmm. And documenting some of why that is, is I think, important <clears throat> understanding some of the things we'll talk about in part two in terms of solutions and, and ways we're going to have to rethink affirmative action going forward. But I just wanted to sort of, for people to know where the term came from, at least in terms of official American government context. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, also to that point, affirmative action was first put in place by the Supreme Court uh, in 1978. And that was a case between um, University of California, Davis School of Medicine, and a Mr. Bake. So Baki. Baki, sorry. Yeah, Thank yeah, you yeah. for that. Uh, so colleges like University of California um, adopted policies designated to kind of compensate for uh, racial, racial disparities. To be more specifically, they established a program to designate 16 out of 100 of their spots for minority students. Uh, Baki applied, apparently applied twice, was very qualified for the position, did not get it um, for the slot, for the school slot, and did not get that. Um, and it went uh, as far as the Supreme Court. So in 1978 is where you see the first time that the Supreme Court kind of steps in um, and, and we start having this conversation, a more public conversation around uh, affirmative action. And it's particularly important, I think you brought up a really good point, Grand Prix, about the ways in which we largely see in a lot of these cases around affirmative action are largely dealing with institution of education, higher education, and then if we go back to Brown versus Board, uh, primary education, <coughs> excuse me, even though it goes beyond that. Um, one of the things that I think is really important, and I'm glad that you pointed that out, is one of the ways in which this country has identified as access to the middle class are home ownership 
and higher education have been like two primary points of entry into middle class. If you get a, a advanced degree and if you have um, home ownership, then um, one, one thing real quick on mm -hmm. Baki. So it did not establish a program for affirmative action, but it allowed race to be considered a factor in admissions. That was the government officially giving legitimacy to that concept. What it banned, however, is quotas. So most it, most people think of Baki as mixed bag at best or as the beginning of the end of affirmative action because Baki was the end of <coughs> allowing official quotas in terms of mandatory diversity slots like the University of California had. So mm -hmm. the actual 16 applicant program, I think, was struck down. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being able to consider admission of race at all was given legitimacy. Mm -hmm. So, again, people consider it a mixed bag at best or... The, the end of a certain form of affirmative action, the quota system, and a transition to a more comprehensive <coughs> consideration points-based system, which I think Rat Sweet Bollinger, I think that was a points-based system. Mm -hmm. Yep, you're absolutely right. Um, so without going into like the full history of all of the uh, Supreme Court cases, although I do want to hit on some of those later on to, to kind of um, illustrate a few points, the thing that I want to bring us back to as we look at... Um, as we look at affirmative action, we look at some of the origins of it, some of the beginning cases of it. Um, and then in that very clear definition, how did you put it, Grand Prix? It was uh, them deciding that they were going to affirmatively. What was the, your wording? Well, not there's a difference between, because <coughs> you see it on applications, right? We are equal <coughs> opportunity employer. Yeah. Equal opportunity it's not really the same thing as affirmative action. Yeah. Equal opportunity means almost like colorblindness, right? Mm. Affirmative action is color consciousness. Like, we're going to actively <clears throat> pursue and promote, prefer applicants of a historical minority oppressed background, <clears throat> which is distinct from what you see from, like, the EEOC is, like, equal opportunity employer, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea mm -hmm. of actually intentionally taking, taking an affirmative step to diversify the workforce, an affirmative step to put more people in positions who are historically oppressed is distinct from what is becoming more dominant today, which is essentially court-mandated constitutional colorblindness, i.e. equal opportunity. Right. Um, now... The, the connection between affirmative action and then, of course, the New Deal and just blanketly just a general understanding of the New Deal is that it's a package of programs, public work projects, regulation, welfare state programs that was implemented in the mid-1930s as a way of kind of providing relief or mitigating some of the impacts of the Great Depression during that time. Um, in fact, some of the children who grew up during that time became later known as uh, the greatest generation or the New Deal kids. Um, those New Deal policies were responsible for creating what we would see today is like the greatest middle class that the world has ever known. Why? Another another thing that I think is particularly important um, is that specifically that establishment of the middle class and the role that the New Deal uh, played in it um, with programs like the GI Bill, other social um, social services programs. But I'm going to spend a little bit more time talking about in this space the GI Bill, largely because it speaks to that way in which uh, it was one of considered one of the largest co contributors to the middle class by giving access to housing um, and also house, access to education. 
So the GI Bill passed in 1944, and it helped build America's middle class. It guaranteed millions of vets, uh, college education, home loans, and even more than that after World War II. Um, and it still does today. Education and training um, benefits were most popular part were the most popular parts of the GI Bill and claimed by 51% of veterans. Some 2.2 million attended college or graduated from school. 5.6 million prepared for voca vocational fields um, such as mechanics, electrical wiring, construction. Veterans could attend any institution that admitted them using benefits that covered even the costliest tuitions, and it helps support spouses as well as children. Uh, nearly three of every 10 veterans use low interest mortgages to buy homes or start businesses, start farms. The economic impact was huge. Um, in 1955, for example, the Veterans Administration backed close uh, to a third of housing starts. Did you want to chime in? Um, yeah, I so the GI Bill... Um, <clears throat> I think people don't understand that America was a rural, almost like poor country, obviously during the Great Depression. So this idea of these big sprawling cities, the built up metropolises, that didn't exist until the 50s, until <coughs> the era of the GI Bill. So the America that we know, the America that people are asking for inclusion into, um, was built by the GI Bill. And the idea that that GI Bill was racially um, disparate in terms of who benefited is a huge part of the argument. Because in terms of like affirmative action, this is a this is an weird concept. That's why I want to do an episode on it. It's like people don't think of all the money people gave as affirmative action. But if you are giving some people this massive head start and other people just a little bit of crumbs, yeah, you are giving them something, but you, you've given this white population such a massive advantage that even though you're giving black people some things, you still are basically having an affirmative action program for mm -hmm. white folks. Exactly. So when you have admission slots <coughs> that are guaranteed for black people, people say, oh, that's not fair, that's, that's racism, that's you know, a problem. But the idea that the program on its face was universal, but its impact was targeted to giving white people more of a leg up. The author is arguing that is basically affirmative action for white folks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But, but yeah, can you talk more? I mean, I'm sure it's in the outline, but just so we know the GI Bill is, but because it was on face universal, how did it have such racially disparate impacts? Yeah. So even though the bill helped uh, white Americans prosper and accumulate wealth and powers, it didn't deliver on that promise for African-Americans or for veterans of color. In fact, the wide disparity in the bill's implementation ended up helping um, in dramatically expand some of the wealth and educational gaps that happened um, in the civil rights between white and black America, uh, black Americans. While the GI Bill language, it didn't ex specifically exclude um, African-American veterans from the benefits, it was structured in a way that ultimately shut the doors for 1.2 million black veterans who had fought in World War II in segregated ranks, um, no less. So when lawmakers began drafting the bill, the GI Bill in 1944, some Southern Democrats uh, feared that um, black veterans that would return would use public sympathy 
for um, veterans to advocate against some of like Jim Crow laws, anti-lynching laws, that sort of thing. So to make sure that the GI Bill largely benefited white people, the Southern Democrats grew on tactics that they had previously used to ensure that the New Deal helped as few black people as possible. Um, So that's one aspect in which the the Southerners had the impact. Now, how did, um, as FDR, how did, how was, what was the support for the New Deal? So largely, um, the, it, it was, it seemed that the only way in which FDR could get support for the New Deal is if Southerners supported it. And the only way that Southerners would support it is that if there was one, there was some stipulations. One, um, this bill had to be completely, he had to be completely silent around the anti-lynching bill. A large number of African-American, a large number of African-Americans had to be excluded from some of the most beneficial key social policies. Um, The Navy, for example, excluded African-Americans uh, completely, and the army closed all but seven units. Um, Roosevelt had brought Social Security to domestic workers. Um, I'm sorry, had not brought Social Security to domestic workers or farmers. And over half of uh, African Americans that worked, they worked in those two fields. They were either domestic workers or they work in, in the, or they worked in agriculture. So the bill excluded um, them just by by nature of excluding those occupations wherein they worked mostly. Excuse me. Um, Southern Democrats affected New Deal legislation in several ways. They they carved out exceptions in the bill, um, regulating businesses such as bills setting minimum wage and farming for domestic services, since that work was performed in the South predominantly by African-Americans. Um, they slowed down the growth of the labor movement, tried to block efforts to unionize in the South, suspecting rightly that, of course, union were uh, motors of racial integration. To get to paint a picture, uh, a little bit more of a picture during that time period, uh, most folks already know it was the Great Depression, but there was already an even greater depression for African-American families, as one might can imagine. And as a source of reference, um, there is a um, book written, An American Dilemma by Gunnar Myrdal. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing Gunnar Myrdal. Oh, thank you. Gunnar Myrdal mm-hmm. uh, in 1944. And in that book, uh, Myrdal talks about the economic situation of Negroes in America. So the masses of Negroes in the South lived in segregated slum quarters. They own very little um property, housing was inadequate, even when you break it down and look at the farm labor, because remember, as it was mentioned earlier, primarily most African Americans who worked during that time, they worked either in agriculture or they did domestic labor. So if you look at farm labor, um, which is a huge part because it dominated the Southern economy, 53% of the people in the country who worked in agriculture worked in the South in 1930s. 40% of those were classified as laborers and were black in the 1940s. 55% of those regions were sharecroppers. So as you can see, excluding that population is excluding a large number of African-Americans by not even having to say no black folks or no African-Americans. They just did it basically Mm -hmm. largely by occupation. And and just for people that have some context. Um, just for how dire the situation is in the South. And 
just the book has this quote. Um, in 1940, 97% of black rural dwellings lacked electricity. Urban housing was not much better. A national health survey discovered that just 10% of white families in the city lacked indoor water supply, but 60% of blacks did not have water in their kitchen, 75% in their bathrooms. In Birmingham, Charleston, and Jackson, Mississippi, more than 90% had no facilities of this kind at all. And whereas urban whites in the South cooked with gas or electricity 90% of the time, the comparable black figures varied from a low of 1% in Jackson, Mississippi to 49% in Dallas. So I just wanted to point out Jackson having this long history of inf infrastructural neglect kind of mirrors the reality of what we're seeing in Jackson today with the water situation being horrible. Like this is a legacy going all the way back to, you know, the early 20th century. And that was part of the point about why this was white affirmative action, because when you were able to uh, give white people these added benefits because they didn't work in racialized fields that were excluded, they were able to build up their infrastructure. They were able to build up people cooking with electricity, the water pipes, paying um, residential property tax because they own homes. And all these things compounded to make white areas more institution infrastructurally strong, stronger property tax bases and make black areas less infrastructurally strong, less strong tax bases. And this is the aggregate effect so people can understand why the pipes in Jackson <clears throat> are piping out black water. That's mm -hmm. utterly undrinkable, despite the fact that, you know, this effort of the New Deal and the war on poverty was supposed to rise up people from those realities. It's just there was no ability to have the widespread prosperity to build up the infrastructure because, again, affirmative action is a very individualistic way of thinking about power. I, the individual, have Social Security. I, the individual, have unemployment insurance. But all those individual choices aggregate into the power and institutional stability communities have, mm. right? So just really understanding how these choices compounded and compounded over and over and over to the point where we are today. Mm. Good point, bringing that up. Um, another thing to point out, most black farmers were tenants or sharecroppers themselves, but not exactly owners. Uh, sharecroppers were dependent and immobile. Debt tied them to a particular planner rather than being paid paid wages. They was they were paid a portion of the product, and which meant that they were vulner, vulnerable to like uh, drops in price for some of the commodities that they sold. Um, another point of reference for folks who wants to uh, look up this further, Allison Davis reported in her classic study, Deep South, in 1941, that most tenants, families between 1935, uh, sorry, between 33 and 35 lived in a semi-starvation. Uh, in 1937, the average per capita income in the South was $314, contrasting with $604 in other states. Cash receipts for cotton, uh, the region-leading leading crop, um, plummeted from $1.4 million to $550 million. Sorry, $1.4 billion to $550 million between 1929 and 39, destroying the livelihood of many black families. Um, so as you can see, again, I just want to the point of emphasizing in a great depression uh black folks are are in a even greater state of depression in this particular situation and are getting 
very little, if any, of the resources to get them out of that situation, thereby widening, widening this gap, this wealth gap, and not allowing them to be part of this creation of the middle class that so many folks of the 30s, 40s, and 50s mm-hmm. were able to benefit from. And, and just, because again, people oftentimes wonder, it's like, but if you were in the military, didn't you get something? It's like, well, how did that actually work? So for example, obviously, if you were black, you they were not giving out these home loans, these backing for the home loans in areas that were predominantly black. That's the whole redlining thing. And you literally could not move to an area that was integrated predominantly white because the covenants wouldn't allow you. So it was you didn't have to write into the bill, blacks don't get home loans from the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. Similarly, and this was something that was interesting in the book, you didn't have to write into the bill that blacks don't go to college for the GI Bill because segregation, you could only go to HBCUs. And the HBCUs were so under capacity it would not have been possible for all the black people who wanted to go to school from the GI Bill to have gone on the GI Bill, because there literally was not space at the HBCUs to accommodate this potential influx of GIs, right? Mm-hmm. So a ton of GIs got told, basically, there's no room for you. There's no point even applying, because we're so full right now. And there was no money for HBCUs to build up their dorms, to build up their institutional capacity, which was not the case for white schools, right? So again, it's like you have this aggregation of experiences where there's no actual formal need to tell black folks, you know, you can't go to college. But the reality of segregation and the reality of not giving money to HBCUs to build up their capacity just basically made it so that white people could go to the University of California. Almost. It was already for free, basically. But if you were a veteran, especially for free. But black folks um, couldn't just because of the realities of not just segregation, but of institutional capacity to use the benefit, right? So the idea that these benefits were colorblind just by excluding, you know, certain people from the ability to use those uh, benefits de facto. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to actually have a formal ban on people using those benefits to accomplish the objective, which was to send millions of white people to college, Mm -hmm. pipe them into these (coughs) department jobs, you know, California's middle class is built up off of the Cold War, basically, of piping people into the Cold War jobs after the Second World War. And you didn't need to ban black people from those jobs formally. You could just say you got to have a degree. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you know, HBCU is giving out degrees in you know, aerospace science <laughs> or mm-hmm. anything akin to that during this time. So just in terms of understanding the fundamental argument of when the affirmative action was white, it's sort of these dynamics that produce these disparate impacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this impacted, um, of course, black families. It impacted women largely um, during the time, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, where it was the cultural norm for women to not necessarily work. That was not that was not the case for um, for black women. Um, It's documented that out two out of five black women were officially recorded to be working outside of the home. Um, it is expected that it was a lot, lot more than that, but that's the amount that was recorded, nearly half. Um, 85% of black women in the labor force, 85% of black women in the labor force either uh, worked in agriculture or domestic service in private households. This was also the one of the largest exploited groups during this time were made uh, domestic workers and or maids. Seven out of 10 of Black women who worked in the South were maids. 
Um, and it was so prominent that if you had a maid that they were black, that no more than 15% of servants uh, were white. Even some poor families employed maids during the during the Depression. Um, and the, again, they consist of some of the most exploited uh, folks during that particular time. So you have this... Um, you have this Great Depression that is happening. Then you have all of these uh, resources, programs, tools, opportunities being presented to folks who are in this state to help them get out of a depression. Those resources being only given to one group as opposed to or primarily given to one group um, over another group. And this based on race. Um, largely, even as like Grand Prix stated, not explicitly saying not black, but identifying them by uh, largely by their occupation. And then you have uh, an aspect of this uh, being such a large driver of what exists today as a middle class uh, providing home ownership and education. And that um also, again, not being given um, access or resource. Most of the cases that uh, are connected to affirmative action have something to do with schools. Um, the most recent cases I will just highlight. I won't go through the whole list. Uh, February 2019, Texas Tech University enters an agreement with the Department of Education to stop considering race and or national origin as a factor in the admission process, concluding a 14-year-long investigation into the school's use of affirmative action. That's kind of a big deal <coughs> and deserves to be noted, um, large or largely or in part because of the main point that you made earlier, is that it is saying that race can be considered um, in admission. Um, you also have the U.S. District Court Judge um, Allison Burroughs upholds Harvard admissions process in the students for fair admitted, ad, uh, sorry, admissions case ruling. While Harvard's admissions process is not perfect, um, she would not uh, dismantle a very fine admissions program that passes constitutional muster solely because it, uh, it could, because it could do better. That's a direct quote. But the one that's the most recent uh, is this year, January 24th. Um, 2022, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court announces it will reconsider race-based affirmative action in college admi admissions. The justices will hear challenges to policies at the Harvard, um, sorry, at Harvard and the University of North Carolina that use students' race among many criteria to decide who should gain a coveted place in, um, in an entering class. Um, so there's this ongoing uh, history with affirmative action and the ways in which it seems like in more present time, currently now, it's it's an issue to have this affirm, you know, to, to operate and to consider race, whereas it was a very direct, mm, very direct, um, Initiative, let's say, of mm -hmm. Southern um, Democratic whites. Yeah. Um, so obviously, <clears throat> if you're in Jackson, Mississippi, and you didn't have electricity or running water in your house until like the 70s, the idea that you'd be able to compete fairly on admissions 
platform with people who have all these aggregated advantages it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But because of the way people are interpreting the equal protection clause of the Constitution, which is like, you know, nobody should be denied um, access to institutions based upon their race, that's kind of was designed to help the descendants of slaves after slavery. What it's been used is to strike down any government policy that considers race at all, claiming that it violates people's rights. And the conservatives have actually gotten really savvy in terms of, because that Harvard case um, that they're, so for this understanding of the Supreme Court, when they said they're going to hear it, that means they're going to hear it next term, 2023, and they're going to rule on it in 2023. So it's called granting a writ of sociori. It's the Latin term for it. So they granted sociori in 2022. They, They didn't rule on it this year. They're going to rule on it next year. And part of the way that people have been making this argument is um, the preference for especially black students is discrimination against Asians. Because mm. the argument is that the Asians have higher test scores. That means that if they're not getting in, then you're preferring black students in a way that is unfair. Right. Mm. So the conservatives are getting very strategic and not making the argument like Baki, who was like a military veteran, mm-hmm. who was like very anti-diversity, like, you know, had these sort of inflammatory statements. But so they're using Asian students who are theoretically more sympathetic because of the lumping of all people of color together. Mm-hmm. To and they're also mm-hmm. the model minority. Yeah, and again, a lot of the, you know, people have talked about this in this channel a lot. The people that come over here oftentimes have more privilege. So if you're plenty of poor Asians, but they many of them don't come to America. The mm-hmm. ones that come over here usually have some sort of accumulated wealth or access to it through their families, so they can afford the best tutors. They're in high-achieving families, and so they're able to pipeline themselves into really good test scores, right? And so the argument they're making is that, oh, you're not just hurting white people by giving preference to uh, <coughs> Latinos, Native Americans is a big one, and blacks, you're hurting other racial minorities, so you have to strike it down, and it's very likely that given the Supreme Court, those policies could be struck down next term. Uh, but yeah, I think it's really important to put all that stuff into context. Um, Michelle Alexander has a really strong argument, I won't read the quote, that basically the black middle class made an agreement in the 80s and 90s that with the Democratic Party, in exchange for protecting affirmative action in elite educational institutions, we will turn a blind eye or help you in the sort of mass incarceration rise, mm. right? So if it's way easier to protect affirmative action because you protect that with lawyers and courts. Mm-hmm. Mass incarceration, you got to fight for people who are deemed criminals, many of them violent criminals. Of course, that was the war on drugs at the time, but it was a harder fight. So many of the black middle class people essentially took the easy route, which is the one that fed them and fed their families. And even in terms of the civil rights movement, that's like an affirmative action defense industry <laughs> where you work at a nonprofit, NAACP, LDF, and you basically stand on the courthouse steps and scream about how this is racial justice. And, but they, people aren't doing that as much for fundamental policies about redistributing resources to working class black people mm-hmm. because that's more difficult or defending the more difficult instances of black people who are in jail. Mm-hmm. Now it's in vogue to talk about nonviolent possession charges and how that's messed up, but that's basically become the limit of where the black middle class is willing to go in terms of fighting mass incarceration mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. so this larger argument about affirmative action kind of sucked <clears throat> up a lot of energy in the racial justice fight, I think is part of the part of the limitations of the book is that he's a white guy trying to defend affirmative action from people like him who are questioning affirmative action and being like, well they gave it to white people, you should give it to black people. 
the larger question that maybe we can talk about in the second episode is what is affirmative action? <laughs> you know, it's like what white people got was trillions of dollars of investment. Mm-hmm. That's never been on the table for black people through the length of affirmative action. Now, some things have happened that have given black people large infusions of money and power and at least possibility, but many of them were not called affirmative action. Right. right? So it's important to not allow the debate around affirmative action limit your f- scope about what you can conceive of politically and also be very intentional and strategic about seeing where the money and power is and not just where, obviously it's ridiculous that we can't have a few black people at Harvard. But a few black people at Harvard is probably not going to lead to the massive redistribution of power and resources we all need. So as we think about this argument, how do we think beyond where the debate has gone to where it needs to go? Mm-hmm. I would also say one of the things that deserves to be pointed out is that uh, even affirmative action as it is written today is not just race-based. It's gender-based. It's differently for folks who are differently abled. So it, it's a it's a way of, in some ways, trying to, um, I guess, level the playing field in a way in terms of getting access to opportunity and resources, even though it's largely painted as a black thing. It's interesting because it's largely painted as a black thing, but as people have pointed out, the largest beneficiaries have been white women. Right. Right. So, again, in the process of protecting affirmative action, being able to specifically focus on how to have the people who are intended benefit, it basically went to all minorities, which, of course, is going to aggregate within the power of whiteness to the most minority group that's most powerful to, or attached to power, which mm-hmm. is white women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Elizabeth Warren, of course, um, was basically a diversity hire. Mm-hmm. She, conservative legal scholar mm-hmm. who was getting diversity hires because she was a woman as she matriculated up to the academy. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, just having people understand these uh, dynamics are very complex. And yeah, just seeing the debate for what it is, but also seeing the issue as bigger than what the mainstream limits the debate to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So back to my the two main points, and I'll just reiterate the one of them, and that is um, one of the things that we hope you got from this conversation and from this episode is how the combination of unprecedented access to government support and powerful discrimination generated by local administration produced racial differences in aid distribution. Um, as we continue to go in search of black black power. power. So hopefully we'll see you in part two and hopefully uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you.